You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this afternoon is coming from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. That scripture reading of Acts 17 has been chosen in connection with Lord's Day 10, which deals with the providence of God. We're supposed to be dealing with conversion or true repentance this afternoon, but I think you'll understand that perhaps this Lord's Day is somewhat more appropriate to the situation. Let us listen together to the Word of God as you find it in Acts 17, verse 16 and following. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown... I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in 
Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 27 and 28. And there the confession summarizes, what do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. And so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, almost every day in one form or another, we are brought face with questions about the providence of God. Often we do not think of things that happen from out of that particular perspective, but nevertheless, it is there. Take these past weeks, for example, up until now, we have always viewed the violence that has been raging in the lower mainland from a safe distance. It was always about other people that we didn't know. It was about matters that a lot of us don't readily relate to. It was not so hard to shake our heads at the terrible things that were happening and then to go on with our daily living. We had a sense of immunity from it all. But then on Thursday, the phones, the Internet, Facebook started buzzing in our community with the news that one of our own had become a victim and a casualty of the current wave of shooting. Excuse me. Sometime early in the morning, shots rang out, and Brother Mark Bunkus died in Hainole Park on the border of Langley and Surrey. And together we are in shock. Together we grieve with the Bunkus family as they deal with this terrible sadness. That has turned their life upside down. Your prayers and support are much needed. Yet along with deep sadness, there is also something else, namely lots of questions and lots of whys. Why? 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 Why did this have to happen? Why such a death? Why this? Yes, a lot of these questions are not just thrown into the air, but they're also directed at God. Why, O oh Lord, did you allow this to happen? Why, O oh God, did you, so great in power, not prevent this? 
Truly, when it comes to our lives and to God's involvement with them, there is often no end to the questions, even the complaints that we may have. For example, why am I always sick? Why did my baby die? Why does that family suffer one blow after another? Why did this have to happen to him or to her? Why, for example, did those people all die in that helicopter fatality off the coast of Newfoundland? Why have four more Canadian soldiers succumbed these days in Afghanistan? The cries and the questions just keep on coming, don't they? Why, if you look long enough at all the pain and the suffering in our lives and in our world, you might very well be left with the question that forms the theme for this afternoon's sermon. Who is in control? Who is in control when it comes to creation? Who is in control when it comes to life's circumstances? Who is in control when it comes to the lives of believers? Well, beloved, in this part of the catechism, we are dealing with that sentence of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So this is all about God as creator, as maker, as father. But you know, this is also about more. For this is about God and his involvement with our lives and with our world. Here, under the umbrella, you can say, of Lord's Day 10, we ask questions such as, what kind of God, Father, Creator, is he? How active is he? How involved is he with this creation, with this universe, this solar system of ours, this planet? And even more than that, how much does he know about us And does he care about our daily lives? What kind of a role does he play in them? Now, there have always been a variety of different answers to these questions. For openers, there are those who adopt the answers of atheism and evolution, who simply deny that God exists and has anything to do with us or with our world. Those are the most radical of answers. And they remove God entirely from the, cre- from the equation. You need not even bother to ask, why God? Because there is no God anyway. There's only us and this material world. In other words, when it comes to God's involvement with creation and with us, the answer is very simply and bluntly, God is not involved. Most people, however, find that answer too extreme. And as a result, some insist that God's involvement is there, but it, you know, it's kind of temporary, sporadic, unpredictable. They say once upon a time God made the heavens and the earth, but he got kind of tired of taking care of it all and taking care of us and all of our silly notions and devices. And in the meantime, he's gone off and he's doing something else in another part of the universe. And of course, one day he might just show up again, but then again he might not. 
You just never know. The best approach is to ignore him. The best approach is to step up to the plate yourself. Get on with making the best of a bad situation. God couldn't care less. So either God is not involved or God's involvement is fickle. But there's also a third position which says that, yes, God is involved, but God's involvement is selective. Now, what do I mean by selective? Well, selective in the sense that God is only involved in the good things, the nice things, the positive things that happen in this world and in your life. In other words, don't ask him about the bad stuff. Don't ask him about the ugly things, about the really hard and nasty things that happen. The things that cause pain and suffering. Because he doesn't have anything to do with that. He's God of the good. The bad is none of his business. Ascribe that to the devil. Now that too is an answer. But... Like so much of the above, it's really not much of an answer. For, you know, if God is only in charge of the good department of our life, what kind of a God is he? If he only manages the good and the devil manages the bad, again, I ask, what kind of a God is he? Is he then not a very limited, very restricted, very constrained, so-called divine being? And can he then claim to be God the Father Almighty? What's so almighty about such a God? Now those are some of the answers that we get today. But what does the Bible say? What does it teach about God and his relationship to our world and to our lives? Is his involvement fickle and nil or selective? Well, the answer to those questions, beloved, is that the God, the God who reveals himself in the scriptures, the God of the heavens and the earth, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him also our God and Father, is very much involved. He's intimately and totally immersed in the life of his creation. And as a matter of fact, he is more than just immersed. He remains essential to our very life and its ongoing existence. You know, the scriptures describe for us a God who creates, a God who maintains, a God who sustains the world and everything in it. And the catechism captures that, that whole idea with one word, that word upholds. It says he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. And as proof of that, you can think, for example, of Psalm 104. 
And you have a very detailed description of how God the Father is upholding his creation in a very detailed and concrete manner. It spills out in all the verbs that are used. God fashions the clouds. God rides on the winds. God makes the waters flow. He brings forth the springs. He grants what is necessary to animals and birds and mountains. He makes the grass grow. And he's responsible for the wine and the oil and the bread that sustain us. He feeds the lions, the psalmist says. And what is that but a picture of the infinite care that God lavishes upon his creation? This is not an absentee God. This is not an indifferent God that we're speaking about. His care is infinite. His attention to detail is astounding. His concern for all that he has made is heartwarming. Psalm 104, together with so many other psalms on the Psalter, points to God's constant interaction with his created realm. But, you know, we also learn more from the scriptures. We learn that this involvement has to do with more than just God the Father. The fuller picture is that God the Father has has involved his son, Jesus Christ, in his creation and in the upholding of all things. You remember what Hebrews 1 says about God making the universe through his son? And secondly, Hebrews says that God, this Son, sustains all things by his power. That in Colossians 1, we are told much the same, namely that, that all things were created by Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Remember that phrase, in him all things hold together. You see, the idea that both Hebrews and Colossians convey is that God not only keeps everything, that Jesus Christ not only keeps everything alive, but he also keeps it all together. Creation and creature need his daily, constant help and care. It's all dependent ultimately upon his power and presence. His absence would make it fall apart. Christ is the glue of creation and the glue of our lives. You know, Psalm 104 says much the same thing. It says, you know, when you remove God's daily care, what happens? Look at verse 29. When, Lord, you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and they return to the dust. In other words, when when God hides his face or holds his breath, creation is in crisis. It panics. It shrivels. It dies. It becomes lifeless. 
to live in this world without God is to live a life that is no longer worth living. So how thankful we should be, how relieved and how comforted that it is our God and Father through His Son who continues to make our world and our lives livable. But nevertheless, having said that, this is not to exclude the fact that at times our lives as believers are put severely to the test. Just because God is there and because God is active with his power and care doesn't mean that he exempts us from all hardship and always makes things easy for us. Neither does he make it easy for this world in which we live. Almost every day, there's one or other disaster happening somewhere on this planet. You know, before the ages of telephone and and satellites and televisions and cell phones, we didn't hear nearly as much about what's going on in the world as we did today. But today what happens at one moment in one part of the world comes into your living room at the next moment. The world is shrunk. The media is everywhere. The stories are non-stop good and bad, but unfortunately mostly bad. And the news is so often depressing. And as for man, he has to blame someone. And you know, since he's never been very good at pointing the finger at himself or owning up to his own culpability, he points at God. God is to blame. God is, after all, all powerful. He could have prevented this. He could have prevented that. He saw it coming. Why did he not stop it? We all instantly become miniature theologians. And the accusations fly everywhere. But what we human beings so easily and conveniently forget is that this world was broken by us. We broke it. We are the mess makers. We are responsible for the trouble that we are in. Every day we experience the consequences and the fallout from our own acts of rebellion and hatred and violence and immorality. Instead of blaming God for the fix that we are in, we should step up to the plate and look into the mirror and confess loud and clear, it's not you, O God. It's us. We are at fault. We are to blame. Yes, and thereafter, you know, thereafter we should spend some time reflecting on just how amazing it is and how it is possible that we can still continue to live on this planet. How can human society still function? How is it that there is still something left in creation to enjoy? How is it that we can get an education, get married, raise families, hold down jobs, go on vacations? 
The only answer to those questions lies with God. And it lies with his patience and his forbearance. In the past, there was a lot of talk about God's common grace. And that kind of talk is making somewhat of a comeback these days. It's said that common grace keeps this world livable. But still, we would do better to speak of what God does today, not as grace, and certainly not as common grace, because grace is never common. Now, in Scripture, grace is always God's unmerited favor to his children. It's always tied to the undeserved salvation of his people. And what we see today, beloved, is God's mercy. God's long-suffering nature. God's great, deep, and unfathomable patience. But nevertheless, no matter what we see, or what you call it, the point is that God keeps on governing. He remains in control. He is sovereign, sovereign when it comes to the good, the better, and the best. But also sovereign when it comes to the bad, the ugly, and the painful. Our catechism is reflecting what Scripture teaches painfully frank. It says, God's government applies to the rain and the drought, the fruitful and the barren years, the health and the sickness, the riches and the poverty. In short, God guides and uses it all. But how? How does God work with the bad? How does he use it? Why does he allow it? And here we have more questions than we have answers. Here we come face to face, you might say, with the limitations of our humanity. Why did God allow a Mark Bunkus to die? Well, for that matter, why did he allow a famous Hollywood actress to die last week after what looked like a Minor fall. Why does he allow the war in Afghanistan to continue and to consume yet more Canadian lives? Why does he allow our streets to become unsafe? Why does he allow all those jerks with guns to run around in our municipalities? There's so many questions. So few answers. So where does that leave us? I think it leaves many unbelievers with endless question as well as with much bitterness and a lot of finger pointing and no answers. But you know, you as believers, now you're a different story. 
I don't think that we can say that we have all the answers either. But what we do have in God's word is enough to, to form a threefold answer for, for troubled times and troubled hearts. And the first part of that answer has to do, believe it or not, with, with patience. What do Christians do when they suffer? What do we do when great pain and sadness enter into our lives? What do we do when things happen that we cannot explain and cannot decipher? We remain patient. And we run to God. Before this service, we sang from Psalm 131. It's a rather unknown psalm. It's not very popular. It's even somewhat obtuse. But if you look at that Psalm 139, it's a very quiet, calm, soothing psalm. A psalm that speaks about the believer running to God as a weaned child runs to its mother. And that's what we're supposed to do. When life simply gets to be too much, we run to God. And we find our refuge and our trust and our confidence and our hope in Him. And we remind ourselves over and over again that this God is working on our behalf. No matter what. Here Romans 8, verse 28 always comes to mind. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Yes, and we even dare to say and to confess that God works in all things for our good. For the good of his people, for the good of his covenant children. And what a huge promise that is. Why I dare say in many ways it's unbelievable, impossible, unimaginable promise. For is it not saying that our God works his way to our good, even through our tears and our sorrows, even through our deepest valleys and our greatest sufferings? Is it not saying that our God has the power to transform our misery into mercy, our sadness into gladness, our pain into peace, and our terror? And it triumphs. How is it possible? We ask ourselves. Well, we have some help. Think of Joseph. What cruel things that his brothers not do to him. How would you like to be sold as a slave to foreign people? What misery did he not experience in Egypt, how'd you like to cool your heels in jail for year after year? And in the end, what did he say to his brothers? You meant it for evil. That was your agenda. But God 
turned it to good. And that was his higher agenda. Think of Job. His immense wealth evaporates overnight. All of his children die in disasters. His health is assaulted by the most dreaded disease called leprosy. His wife tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? And his friends come along and accuse him of hypocrisy. But Job hangs on to God. Somehow, somewhere, in some way, he knows there is a way out and a way up. He's convinced that God and goodness will prevail. And what about Paul? He used to be called Saul. I'm sure that when he was running around Jerusalem and the neighborhood, disrupting Christian worship services, throwing men and women into prison and beating up believers, there were more than just a few Christians asking God, why don't you get rid of this religious terrorist? Why don't you just chop him off at the knees? And did God answer them? Not in their time. But in his time, he answered it with the most surprising of all things. Saul became Paul. How's it possible that a man like him got converted? A fierce persecutor of the church becomes an equally fierce promoter of the church of Jesus Christ. Again, God... And goodness triumphs. And that's the way it has been and always will be. And we need to realize this. God will do what he will do. Sometimes he'll do it sooner. Sometimes he'll do it later. Sometimes he does it in this life. Sometimes he even does it in the life to come. Only realize that in the end, God's goodwill shall triumph. He will show himself to be sovereign and supreme for the glory of his name and the well-being of his people. Yes, he will do so. And if you ask how, how will he do it? What does Romans 8 also say? It says that God works for our good through him who loved us. God's goodness comes to us in the end because we have a Savior who loves us, who pays for us, dies for us, rises for us, ascends for us, rules for us, returns for us. So if you're one of God's covenant children, don't grow impatient. Don't grow bitter and distrustful in the days of adversity. Be patient. God knows what he's doing. You may not know, but God does. 
He has something in store for you. Paul says it's called goodness. And so there you have the first antidote. The first answer to living in troubled times, it's patience. But you know, the, the, the catechism goes on, again summarizing scripture, and also then talks about thankfulness. We need to remind ourselves that, and probably it's good that we do that today, that not every day of our lives is a day filled with clouds and deep shadows. Thankfully not. So what should we do when the evil days pass and when the good days dawn again, when you have happiness, health, and wealth again? You should remember to turn your face to God and to give thanks. In other words, don't become forgetful and don't become smug. Don't take it all for granted. Don't become conceited. Now continue to praise the fountain and source of every blessing. And of course, that sounds easy. It almost sounds natural and automatic, doesn't it? But nevertheless, I think we were reminded in last Sunday afternoon sermon that it's hardly that. Thankfulness is an attitude that is not easily learned or quickly grown. All you have to do is ask those nine lepers who forgot all about it. We need to apply ourselves to it and we need to ask God to work it in us. And why do I say that? Because it strikes me that being sour, negative, critical, and skeptical are things that lie much naturally closer to hand. Do you ever listen to radio talk shows? As I'm driving around in my car, visiting and going to hospitals or different places, I, I do from time to time. And, and whenever I do, I find there's usually one thing very much prevalent. And it's the human ability to complain. No matter that you're living in the best country in the world, no matter that you're living in the best province in the best country of the world, No matter that you have a roof over your head, that you have abundance, that you have opportunities unlimited, in spite of all that we have, we are perhaps, and I say perhaps, but I think I'm almost right, we are perhaps more unhappy and dissatisfied as a people than ever before. Our blessings are often drowned in a sea of complaint. It's on that kind of negativism. They're not only present in the world, it also creeps into the church. We take issue with that. We don't like this. But you know, all the while, we can worship, we can sing, we can pray, we can serve, we can witness, we can learn, we can grow. Some time ago, a Christian from a third world country said to me, How is it? You people have so much. And yet you sound so miserable. You don't have the problems we have. You don't have the poverty. You don't have the AIDS. 
You don't have the dictatorship. You don't have the corruption. But you still know how to gripe and complain. And we have all that stuff. And we still know how to laugh. And how to look up to God and rejoice and be thankful. Now, of course, this is not to say there aren't any problems in our country or there are no problems in the church either. But surely it's a reminder for us to place all these things in perspective. Complaint should not become a disease in our lives that eats away at our joys and robs us of our thankfulness. Now make sure that you keep thankfulness as a feature in your life. You know, the Catechism talks about thankfulness in good times, but I'm also talking about thankfulness in bad times, in troubled times. Because, you know, even when you're in misery, there's still blessings. There's still things that you can praise God about. There's still so much for which We can give thanks. So I would say to you, as the catechism says, and ultimately as the scriptures say, practice patience in troubled times. Practice thankfulness in good, but also in troubled times. And and one more thing, and that's the last part of the answer, the third part, it's called confidence. The catechism speaks about with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence. Realize that God not only governs this world and everything in it. Realize that he not only works unceasingly for the good and the well-being of his people. But realize as well that he is leading this world and his children somewhere. That he's leading us into a whole new era, a whole new age, a whole new existence. And that one day, the drought and the barren years and the sickness and the poverty and the death and the suffering will be no more. It'll all be gone. Today, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, everything in creation is groaning. But one day, it'll all be Rejoicing. Yes, and we need to keep our eye on that day. Especially when we're experiencing setback after setback. Pain after pain. Sorrow after sorrow. Especially when we've had a week like last week. We need to keep looking up. Looking up in hope. Looking up in the knowledge and the certainty that a better day is coming. Thankfully, our God and our Father is not just in the upholding and governing business. 
He's also in the renovating business. And one day, this whole creation that he's made is going to be renewed. It'll sparkle. And we're going to sparkle in it. Paul says that we are and we shall shine like stars in the universe. You see what a day is coming, what a hope we have? Praise God. Praise our Creator and our Father. Through Jesus Christ, praise the God of all providence. He knows what He's doing. And He says to you today, be patient. When I put you to the test, be thankful when I lavish all manner of gifts upon you. And always be full of confidence with respect to the future. Because nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.